You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Howard Linson, the man, the myth, your return to Real Vision. It's been a long time. We've waited. Everybody, I must have had 3,000 emails saying you've got to bring Howard back. Oh, you have a lot of drunk listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Howard, just for people who, who, who aren't so familiar with your background, um, give us a bit about your background and, and your journey to where you are today. I am uh, Canadian. So uh, it may come in handy at some point soon. <laughs> you know, the uh, it's funny because it's uh, I haven't been home in a while because of COVID, but um, in Toronto, I'm I split my time Phoenix, San Diego, and um, born in like I said in Toronto, but uh, moved to the states, go to Arizona State, Harvard of the West for my MBA in a school called Thunderbird. Uh, and then I just stayed in the desert, uh, learning how to invest, starting companies, uh, probably claim to fame. 2006, I started a show called Wall Strip, which became the first uh, web video show acquired by a, a major media network. So that was a it was a fun ride. Um, and then inspired by Twitter, I jumped out of CBS about about my way out of my contract with about six months to go at CBS and started StockTwits, which is Twitter for finance. And now we're probably, at least in the States, the largest social network for traders and investors with about 5 million members uh, talking about stocks. If you love stocks, you love talking about them all day long, and you don't mind a scrum, an American swearing scrum. Uh, StockTwits, is, StockTwits is the place where you wore the hell me out. Uh, we have a great CEO in there now who you know. Uh, you know we're really excited. It's a profitable company, you know, lean, mean. And uh, I invest at a social leverage. My partners and I have a fund called Social Leverage uh, that we invest out of. And that's my dog, Lindsay, who's got a chew toy. Hopefully my wife will grab. <laughs> my dogs usually make an appearance in the video. So talk me through Social Leverage. What, what is it you do? You've had some big successes there. Because what I want to do is just get a bit of an understanding. Then I want to talk about where things are going and the stuff that you're seeing. Because this whole kind of campaign we're doing over two weeks is really you know, has everything changed? I don't want to pick your brains about it, but I'd love to hear a bit about social leverage, what you guys have done, because I think you're on your about to raise a fourth fund now. Social leverage started out while I was starting StockTwits. It was, it was my personal investing. I was seeing so many companies, 2007, 2008, 2009. I didn't have a formal entity. And my partner, Tom, and I started a, a holding company called Social Leverage. And we were just investing our own capital. And uh, 2013, we formalized it with a, a first fund, a $6 million fund. Uh, we made 34 investments. And then we did a second fund, a $25 million fund, added a third partner, Gary Bennett, who had uh, started a Sisley, which we had invested in and sold it to Salesforce. And he was just leaving Salesforce after his burnout. And then fund three was $45 million, which we're investing out of now. And then we'll in the process of raising our fourth fund, about a $75 million fund. We're, we're first checks. Uh, million dollar board seat, hands on, um, and our, uh, you know, the basic thesis was in 2008, um, 
we saw this move from financial leverage to social leverage. That was the social networks of Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, they were exploding, and you could piggyback on them. They hadn't figured out the arbitrage of what a, what a user was worth. Today, you go and you pay top dollar for a user, right? We're seeing that with DTC companies, et cetera. You're, you, you pay. Uh, they figured out how to charge you properly for that. But back then, everybody was building companies kind of for free on the backs of those social networks. Anyways, the... Um, and we focused on financial services. So claim to fame, I guess, in the fund is we're early investors, seed investors in, in Robinhood. And today it's an $11 billion company. I'm just fascinated. So you take a bunch of different bets in the, in the fund when you start. How many of those are zeros and how many of those end up as meaningful things? Because it's a very different world, VC investing, to the world that I know. You know, because you have to deal with the zeros as well as the Robinhoods. How does, how does that whole process work? Well, I mean, I find it... Interesting. Well, first of all, we're in a bull market. So let's just call it a boom, call it a bubble, call it whatever you want. But we're in this uh, new, I hate saying the word new paradigm, but we are in a software driven world with high margins, uh, much easier uh, to scale in a lean way. So, so the failure rate, surprisingly, is much lower. Plus, in a world where these humongous planets, Salesforce, uh, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Netflix exists, the, the talent is paid for. So even if, kind of like the old days, maybe with car mechanics, they could always get a job. You know, if you have great engineers, there's always a soft landing for some for these software companies, you know, a million ahead. So it's, it's almost hard to lose money. But in the end, yes, most seed funds or, or 70% of seed funds I've read do not return all their capital. So it's not an easy business. Uh, it's definitely a, a picker's type of business still and a networking type of business. And social leverage has just over the years positioned itself with strong opinions, uh, theme-based approach to financial services and enterprise investing, obviously experience and deep domain experience around that. And we just keep doing the same thing. But, but software has something where um, the, there's just outsized gains to be had from picking winners in the software space, probably because of the margins, probably because of the growth ability, probably because of the ability of global, social, mobile to just go everywhere quickly. Um, so the, you're seeing these just outsized winners where, where even people like me you invest in companies that are under five or $10 million valuation and you have multi-billion dollar exits. It's hard to, it's hard to fathom this. Right. Because when I I'm 55. So when I was in starting my business career in the 90s, there was no Internet. So a, a good consumer product that, that I had at one of my first companies went on QVC and a good business, you know, was uh, waiting for QVC to pay you because they were the Internet before the Internet. Right. You, you know, QVC held all the cards. Now the now all the cards are held in the ether. And we're seeing that even with decentralization. So the failure rate is not as high as, let's say, mom, pop store. So, um, so I would say our failure rate is pretty low still over the course of these first three funds. Obviously, we expect a lot of companies not to work. But because of power laws, it's just one or two companies that, that just explode that pay for everything. So you have to be good at still picking winners. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. You had a vision pretty early on about kind of, we can call it fintech. I don't know what you saw back then. You kind of saw the decentralization of finance 
What what gave you that thought? Because it was very ahead of the game, really. Because you know you started stock twits, but very few people had gotten onto that idea. It was still a world dominated by investment banks and a few major brokerages. Why did you think everything was about to change? Well, even getting connected to someone like you through um, who's now running a public company through uh, Subneat, right? Yeah. I, I, in the pre-internet world, you know, an MBA from ASU, I joke about it. Like, what the hell is that worth, right? In, in the world post-internet, it was just, you know, I was going to ASU to, for the sun and the golf and get the MBA. But you're not, you're not going to go to Wall Street with that. or You're not going to go to work at, uh, at uh, any of the, at the premier companies per se, right? It, 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 you're self-selecting yourself to a life of leisure, um, which kind of I was. But... <laughs> The, I was an entrepreneur hard, had a huge break with my first company, The Grip, uh, which was the product we sold to QVC. And I just got exposed to growth and to industry and great entrepreneurship. And I started a hedge fund, you know, because I'm an idiot, because, our, because my little company was making so much money with my partner. We were managing our own money in the 90s. And I was on the other side of the phone call, just calling brokers, learning the market and getting ripped off and but actually making money because in the 90s, health, it was the semiconductors and healthcare were going up. So so, of course, I started a hedge fund because that was the entrepreneurial thing to do. And um, I hated it. By 2005, I was miserable. I would be the guy talking to my television going, what is like, why is that same guy have an opinion on everything? And I wasn't exposed to the world of Bloomberg. I didn't have enough capital to, to pay for a Bloomberg. So I was using Yahoo Finance and the street.com and I was miserable. Um, and so when YouTube came out, uh, I said, I'm going to build CNBC on YouTube. That was my giant epiphany uh, with, no, with no background in production and, and making content. Uh, I was a, uh, a poor stand-up comedian in Toronto as a young kid. Um, and, and so the whole idea was I'm going to create uh, a show on YouTube. I'm going to create CNBC on YouTube. And I pinged Fred Wilson, who randomly had backed the street.com. I actually didn't know that at the time. And I said, I'm going to do, uh, uh, you know, kind of CNBC on YouTube. And we had been friends back and forth on, on his blog back then. It was pre-Twitter. And he said, you know what? I'm, I'm good. He gave me 50K and, and he called Mark Pincus. He called Brad Feld. He called all the best investors in the world. He gave me their phone number. And he said, just start dialing. This is like, you know, this is still the era of the BlackBerry row. Fred Wilson goes, I'm in for 50K. And he starts handing me out phone numbers. And I literally went through 10 phone numbers of Fred Wilson. And each one of them said yes, like because it was a, a referral from Fred. You know, it's, hi, this is Howard Lindzen. I'm an idiot. I went to ASU. I got a show. I'm going to build CNBC on YouTube. Fred Wilson's in for 50K. And then everybody was like, yeah, I'm in for 25K. So I thought BC were like dumb people. Like, I mean, you just pick up the phone and call them. The money comes in. So I raised 600 grand to build this idea, like you're doing real vision today. Uh, and, and we would make these three minute silly, you know, uh, trends. It was about trends, uh, shows on YouTube and we would spread them across VO, Rever. There, back then there was a hundred, uh, video sites, uh, and YouTube kind of came into the, the leadership role. So at the time we would make the show and really the hard work was after, cause you had to distribute it to like 40, uh, different places. So, so it was like a weird, phenomenon like youtube wasn't dominant and so you just had to send your your video everywhere and, and that kind of led to a lot of other investments because now i'm in the video business or in the distribution business or making my own content business so i got to like figure out how to not just make the show but get it seen by as many people because they aren't they weren't all just on one or two sites so so that was kind of the thing and and, and because cbs bought it 
you know, we didn't have revenues, et cetera. Uh, we were kind of inventing what was going on. And, and then when Twitter came out, every, you know, so it's between YouTube and Twitter. You, Twitter came out and I said, that's going to be Bloomberg, right? And, I'm, and, and I went to Fred Wilson and I, and I sent him a, a message on my BlackBerry saying, you know, I love RIM. And back then, you know, you were using your BlackBerry, you were pinning or, or sending messages. And I, and, I, and I put a dollar sign in front of RIM uh, because if you used a hashtag, it was full of spam Twitter already even back in 2007. And Fred sent me back a, a message saying, genius, you know, you should start a company. And off I went, uh, you know, with StockTwits, which is now 12 years. Now, now, so that was my epiphany. First YouTube for, for and we haven't seen that until Real Vision. Uh, and, and even today, maybe Davey Barstool is doing stuff everywhere. Um, but we still have not seen that CNBC of YouTube, right? That where people spend hours a day and, and it's their channel. I don't know why people watch CNBC. That's kind of my, my thing. So I haven't watched it in, in 10 years. It was cheddar, but they didn't seem to make any content that anybody actually watched. Yeah, I think John's genius on that. Because I didn't get it, I still don't get it. But John is, was just such a great entrepreneur and hustler that he he had this vision around distribution over content first, and you got to choose one or the other. And so he just went all out, top down, like get it everywhere, worry about the content later in many ways, and that worked. You know, he found a buyer. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful country. You can't you can't predict what's going to happen. But there is this giant void. You had Cheddar, which sold for a lot of money, but didn't really have a there there, right? Uh, and then you have um, CNBC, which just gets worse, in my opinion. Though I don't watch, it, it gets worse from what I can hear. But people still, people still, it's like their wet blanket. And then there's FinTwit, which is, you know, not not really good enough, right? It's a bunch of people pontificating and yelling. And uh, you could obviously say the same thing about StockTwits, but we're there because we care about stocks, and that's all we care about, right? You know, stuff gets pulled. So it's a very focused kind of microservice uh, blogging service. But the key thing, going back to like wrapping it all together for you, which your question was financial services, I didn't have any kind of great genius, right? Like, I, you know, I'd love to say that I'm a genius about this. You know, I've been called clever and Fred thought the dollar sign was genius, right? I, I'm really proud of the cash tag and, and that because it gave us a way to parse people that had intent to talk about stocks, right? But what happened was by using Twitter so much and seeing so many smart people kind of integrate and partner and use the dollar sign and, and do this, I started saying, why isn't the trade connected to the dollar sign? And this is why I'm always like aggravated with Twitter and they've underachieved. You should be able to trade. If, if Raul Paul or Howard Lindsay or Mark Andreessen or, or, or Chamath or anybody that we trust is out there throwing tickers around, you should be able to just one click trade and then share that trade. Like that's social trading. That's social dissemination. That's that old cartoon, buy, 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 buy. Sell, 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 sell. That's that's what Twitter really is, and you can't really connect the two because Twitter didn't really want to go into the transaction layer, right? So, so when I saw Robinhood, I'm like, okay, if you guys build this, a true mobile free trading brokerage, okay, this thing will be ginormous. This was back in 2013 when I met what them. Was that, what was their pitch? What their pitch was the company was called Kronos Research. They were out of money. Uh, Baiju and Vlad. It's a funny story. I because of stock I I was kind of a wimp in hindsight. I didn't want it in 2013. If you were going to be a broker dealer, you were the sucker. Like, no one wants to be a broker dealer, right? But so so I kind of dropped the ball there because I didn't want to be uh, what do you call it? I didn't want to be governed by the SEC and, and Finra. Stocktwits is just a simple communication product. What what Robinhood's genius was 
is they, they got a great designer. They really understood high-frequency trading because Kronos Research, the company that became Robinhood, they had started out a high-frequency trading operation, and they just couldn't figure out how to make money. I don't even know the whole story. But when they came to me, they showed me this app in 2013. It kind of looks the exact same it is today. They didn't have their FINRA license. They didn't have the SEC approval. But I said, listen, if you build this app and we integrate it into StockTwits and you let people share their trades wherever, now they're shared on Reddit and everywhere else, is people will go bananas. That was just my prediction. And then the other thing that when people kept saying to me at Social Leverage, well, this will never make money, this will never make money. Well, that that's not how Silicon Valley seed stage investing works. Part of software investing, and now we're seeing it with open source, right, because I do a lot of uh, interviews with open source, is the arbitrage of getting a user. Because Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn have figured out how to charge the exact amount for a user pretty much compared to where it was in 2007, 2008, the true growth of a company becomes from being able to arb the cost of a customer acquisition at, at, a, at a much fairer rate than YouTube, Facebook, et cetera. So we focus a lot on companies that have this hidden ability to arbitrage customer acquisition. And I knew Robinhood was the first company that you would buy one share of Google and show it like a Snapchat to your friend. Okay, you can't do that on Schwab Ameritrade. They're still paying three, four hundred dollars a customer for customer acquisition. So was Wealthfront and Betterment. So there was really no all the robos were paying the same with no switching costs. So with Robinhood, what they became, they got like a Snapchat effect because people would show off their screen and show off their trade. So they were acquiring customers at, at zero dollars. So I figured if they can acquire a million customers over the next 10 years, this is the way I was thinking, at, at zero dollars versus Ameritrade at $350, well, you just you built a $350 million company. Well, here we are, uh, 10 to $20 million customers later. They're probably going to do 700 to a billion this year based on my guesstimates of, you know, uh, of piecing together the news clippings and they have 10 to 12 million. So no wonder they're worth 11 billion. Now, are they really worth it? I don't care. Like, I mean, we've, we've sold a little stock along the way um, at social leverage, but I mean, what, you know, of all the epiphanies I had, that was the best one. And I still believe that epiphany is going to happen. I still believe there's a Bloomberg, not necessarily a terminal. You can't recreate Bloomberg, but I think, I think, Death by a thousand cuts in the United States. This this constellation approach to jitsu, where you have coifin for charts, and you have uh, you know certain you know Y charts if you're an RIA, and you have uh, real vision if you want deep discussions. You have podcasts on Spotify. You have stock twits. You have Reddit. You have whatever you want. And so it's up to the user. I would say this today, Roel, is like everybody. You know, we complained back in the '80s. You know, the small guy had no chance. Well, in 2020, every single person on the planet has inside information if they know how to use the tools, right? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the huge difference, right? Yeah. It's, you know, when we started Real Vision, it was democratizing financial information, and that's what's happened. Everybody yeah. gets the kind of access that nobody used to have before. Yeah, and we're still complaining about it, which is beautiful. That's the opportunity. Uh, there's still people yelling while there's just... And tremendous information. You know, I'm going to have Chamath on my show. You're going to have some of the best. You have some of the best investors on your show. Just sharing for free, and no one even want, like. It seems like no one even wants it at some level. So I, I find like you're the stuff that you're doing on the macro and the podcast stuff that I never thought I'd be into um, is the stuff that I like the best. Long form, 
build relationships with smart people, the know, you know, being a smart node for other people and sharing information. I just cannot believe the alpha and the signal that's out there. And so um, I'm just keeping my head down, sharing as much as I can. And I can't believe it every day that I wake up that there's just this much alpha. Now, I don't understand the markets any better than I understood them 20 years ago, maybe less. The more work I do, the dumber I feel sometimes, right? Like, you know, with Davy Barstool saying stocks only go up and the word stonks and BTFD and all the things that I helped, you know, push. But I've also never felt more in, in tune with the markets because, you know, I feel that they're politicized. I feel I know who to check in with to give me that reality, you know. And I think more than ever, it's a behavioral driven market. And uh, there's a lot of new people, a lot of new people we're competing against. And then the biggest trend, sorry, I don't know what you finish. What people don't see is they're still making fun of this, but what they don't see is that this American pastime is like the new baseball, right? And COVID might have accelerated that. This in. But I always thought it was coming. So as much as people give me credit for 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 being early to this, it's a fucking nightmare waiting ten years for this stuff to. Take You've off. been the saying fact. this was coming. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like really shit Robinhood, the iTunes, the Apple Store came out in the iOS apps two thousand and eight or two thousand nine. Robinhood did not. This was all Twitter's to get. The fact is, DraftKings, which is a twenty billion dollar company, and Robinhood, which is going to be a $20 billion brand and company in the next five years if they continue at this pace, uh, maybe more. Those are all Twitter products. Those were all simple hacks that that uh, the board of Twitter let Jacko create Square, which is also like Twitter is let Square, forgetting about all the other things they've screwed up, Square, DraftKings, Robinhood should all be part of the ecosystem. Twitter was Bloomberg. If you really think about the three things they missed, you know, Coifin or some kind of charting product, um, some kind of, you know, 24-hour video business channels. But, but sports, and, if you look at Bloomberg, sports and business are the two verticals. So Twitter had those people. They have the athletes and they have the traders on, on Twitter because of the real time. So they haven't corralled the three biggest businesses that they let get away from them. Square, which they let leave their own house. Uh, DraftKings that they could have bought for a song over the last 10 years. And then Robinhood, they, you know, probably still a cheap acquisition. If they were serious about doing business, they wrapped themselves in free speech, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just let all these other businesses happen. I will say finally that international is going to blow people's minds. You know, Robinhood tried to get into a UK and Australia and they've kind of recently pulled out for whatever reasons. I don't know. Maybe, maybe just too hard or the margins from, uh, um, uh, what do you call it with Citadel from, uh, Maybe you're not allowed to do that in the rest of the world, the um, order flow. And so I'm also an investor in eToro, which is the Robinhood and Coinbase combined of the rest of the world. They're in 140 countries, started in 2009, and, and they'll do close to a billion dollars in sales this year. Nobody in America has heard of them. And so you've got Robinhood in the U.S., you have eToro uh, in 140 other countries, but then you have now hundreds of other countries that are going to clone Robinhood and use like the plaids of the world. And, you know, we're investors in Alpaca and, and there's drive wealth, which has got great investors in it. And apex is old school. 
powering these brokers. So there's brokers that you've never heard of that can spin up with a good brand in Singapore or in India, or there's 10 of them in China and there's 10 of them in India and then Africa. And so what we're seeing is early stages. Is if you look at the 10 most bought stocks in like Brazil, it's, it's Tesla, Amazon. So there's a global demand imbalance from people investing fractional amounts uh, in these other countries. So it's not just Americans that want this, these stocks. It's the last great bastion of American culture. I mean, look, I mean, it's amazing because all the young people have suddenly finally stampeded in and COVID was the creator. Obviously, it makes us all a bit nervous. And I think you've always been pretty open about this saying, listen, everyone's going to have to learn a lesson. Markets go up, markets go down, and that's part mm -hmm. of the game. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, it, it kind of feels like it's a slight shame to drag everybody in at all-time record valuations in a market that almost makes no sense whatsoever. And now yeah. that doesn't mean it can't keep going up, but yeah. it's just like, it kind of feels like you've got lambs to the slaughter a bit. Yeah, and I'll say this, this is one of my biggest positions, you know, the, but I would say this to you, Ro, because I just talked to Chafin at Benchmark and then Ross Mason, who was the CEO of MuleSoft, founder of C CEO of MuleSoft, that sold MuleSoft two years ago for $6 billion to Salesforce at a 21 times sales. And everybody was laughing and, you know, cause Salesforce does a lot of whack big acquisitions. Some, some don't work, but this one, the next year they paid the equivalent of seven times sales because MuleSoft grew at a hundred and something percent grew faster than it ever had grown under Salesforce. You know, after 15 years, it grew faster than it had ever grown at its size under Salesforce. So who are we to say, I kind of say, this is the era there's just not enough supply of the right companies. You know, we went from 8,000 stocks to 4,000 stocks, of which of those 4,000 stocks, 3,600 of them are turds, right? The private equity stock bounced around. They're full of financial leverage. There's no true hooked up to the cloud open source companies. Right now, there's two pure public companies that are open source. Not that open source is a great business. Those are founders making crazy decisions to start companies where they give away their product for free. And so Mongo and Elastic are basically the only, if I was going to start an open source ETF, there's two companies. Okay. So in a world where there's going to be a hundred open source companies. Is it because it's still owned by VC? Is it because it's still owned by VCs that no, nobody's going public? Because these open things, the open source companies take forever to get to a revenue that will allow them to go public, first of all. Okay. Secondly, halfway through their life in the first 10 years, Amazon comes along and says, we're going to just steal it. And Microsoft comes along and either buys it. So, so you've got these big giant companies ready to buy open source. So basically, Salesforce became everybody wants to be a platform. If you, if you listen to Ross or you listen to Benchmark, and that makes sense. We all want to be platforms. Real Vision wants to be a platform. StockTwits wants to be a platform. So does Microsoft. So does Amazon. So what they're going to do is buy up these open source companies. That's why there's only two of them. So in a world where um, there's not enough supply of great pure software companies, maybe the Maybe the young guys are smart. If they're coming in to buy Carnival Cruise Line and airlines, maybe you know they deserve to get slaughtered. But if they're coming in to buy the NASDAQ 100, I think it's just a supply-demand issue. So yes, there's huge multiple contraction risk in the market. That's kind of the risks that I see in talking to great VCs. Good luck timing that, and um, good luck understanding truly shorting a stock based on the hope of multiple contraction in a world of endless money and in a world of zero interest rates, 
I, I, that's the one thing that of all the things that I'm a 55 year old nervous Canadian Nelly, and I always have one foot out the door. So I'm not making as much as I should, but thank goodness I don't short stocks. And I learned that early because being on the other side of this trade makes less sense than being long in my opinion. And, um, but at the same time, I think we'll have more issues like March because, you know, everybody's connected and everybody panics at the same time. And if you got, you, you know, so I think we'll have more volatility as well. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. I just think, uh, as you're alluding to, you know, these are businesses. I mean, this is a whole different world. General Electric, I don't know what its margin is, but it's like probably 12% or something. Every one of these companies is 60, 70, 80%. 90. 90. StockTwist has over 90% gross margins and growing faster than ever. I mean, mean, so what do you... What does that mean? What is that? I mean, it's impossible to know, I think, is what you're saying. That's what I say. I agree. I mean, I think Stan Druckenmiller has been another guy who's been on this one trend. He's like, this is going to happen. Here's the other thing that's going to happen, So, if you you have time for this, is you have a world. I never was going to buy bonds. I never understood bonds. That's a world of, of, of that you understood and CFAs understood. So with the combination of the whitewashing of CFAs, if you're a CFA, you're working on a spreadsheet about the cloud when we haven't decided what the tan- – we haven't been close to capturing what the value of the cloud is. Just the three private clouds, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, and Google, have $75 billion. And that doesn't sound like a lot, really, but the, just those three are $75 billion. Okay, so when you say a CFA, what the hell does a CFA mean in 2020? Right. Uh, You know, a a graphic designer has more insight into the size of the markets than a CFA does. So you throw out the spreadsheet. Okay, so in 2000, not in 2000, in the bubble, they said, throw out the spreadsheet. The Internet's going to be huge. But the cost of starting a business, the cost of acquiring a customer, the cost of the hardware, you know, there was no cloud. So those businesses, you know, the cat came home to roost. Right now, we're talking about companies that are 15 years old, growing faster than they've ever grown before, right? Salesforce, et cetera, by doing acquisitions and Amazon growing faster than they've ever grown before. It used to be you went public and sales would slow automatically. Now you go public late, which we've been complaining about, and sales are just getting going. Twilio just had their best quarter of all time, you know? So... And Microsoft just came in to compete with them. So it's just a kind of a new paradigm. Yeah, and... I was thinking this through the other day as well. I was just thinking, you know, Google hasn't been executing particularly well. I mean, I asked you this question. And I'm like, fuck, these guys own all the world's data. And once yeah. they figure out how to leverage that again, this yeah. company's worth $2 trillion, $3 trillion, $4 trillion, $5 trillion. I mean, it's unparalleled. There's no spreadsheet. That's what I'm saying. So some analyst on Wall Street. This is a mood. We're in a mood-based risk-on, risk-off environment. Google's worth $500 billion or $5 trillion, okay? The closer it gets to $500 billion, I'll buy stock, okay? The closer it gets to $5 trillion, I'll sell stock. You know, that's the way I look at Apple. Once it got to $2 trillion, like my mind couldn't grasp the numbers, and I don't care if it goes to $4 trillion. I sold a lot, and I switched into other tech stocks. But the more smart, and I'm not saying they're investing smart. I'm saying the more smart 
open source and, and software founders that you that I talk to, and I know you get to talk to them too. They 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 Matthew Prince at Cloudflare. I, I was texting with them, and we were, and this like very conservative guy who runs Cloudflare. You know, you know, and 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 I own the stock, and we don't talk about his company, but you know, I'll say, what do you think about this market? And he'll say, well, I don't know where else I would put my money. And these are smart people saying stuff that we would uh, we would twenty years ago say, oh, that's a sign of the top. When when really smart people are saying, I got no other choice to put my money. That's usually not a good sign. But they truly don't have a place to put their money. Bonds are a joke. If you're if you're an asset allocator and you've got forty percent of your client's money in bonds, I don't know. You're 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 steering your client off a cliff. The advisors need to move their clients to a different paradigm. Maybe it's 40% stocks, 30% cash, 30% early stage investing, but everybody needs to go further out. In a software world, people need to go further out on the risk spectrum. In a world where we're socially distant, okay, people are going to downsize into smaller places. Maybe they'll have 10 homes, but they'll all be 2,000 square feet or 1,500 square feet, and they'll all have restoration hardware, uh, far-fetched clothing, Lululemon, Nike stuff, and you just have little places around the country that are that are yours, right? And they're just kind of like pods where you have the same clothing and T-shirts. You know, we don't have to have suits. We don't have to have dress shoes. We don't have to have, you know, jewelry. It's just, you know, we. and in a world like that, I mean, we're just getting started. And so that's the, the weird thing is that the old economy seems to be getting worse and people are in denial about the old economy. I call them civilian-based stocks like Simon Property Group. And they'll have to reimagine themselves too. But then you have the new economy, which may just still be undervalued because there's no supply and too much demand. And where does crypto fit into all of this? And you know, in the broad context, not just in Bitcoin, but the whole because I know you've been looking at that space as well. Yeah, I've been lucky because my proxies for Bitcoin have been Bitcoin itself. So I own enough that it's it's worked and you know, probably not enough, sorry, but I own enough that it's like, you know, it's fun. And but I don't use it, so it doesn't make sense to me still. But through eToro and Robinhood, those are kind of my crypto investments, right? Because I get exposure to what people use crypto for trading and holding and looking at in their accounts. And um, but in terms of like applications, I'm a little discouraged, uh, maybe because I live in America and we don't, you know, PayPal and Square work and cash still works and your debit card still works and you pay your Visa, MasterCard, they're the railroads. and everything kind of works. So I think as an American, I'm probably at a disadvantage because I'm never going to really see uh, it work, or at least in, in my lifetime, I, I'm starting to think that. And and if I do see it work, we got other problems. Like if, if, if Bitcoin becomes really important tomorrow and goes to 50,000, I think we have other problems that, that scare me. And what about the rise of the retail investor in that space? It feels like that is going to attract more and more people that falls into the, your thesis overall that, you know, this is a space that there is an ability for people to participate. Participate early. Like a Bitcoin was, you could have bought it at 12 cents. You know, Yoni at eToro in 2010 was telling me to buy uh, eToro at 12 cents. The only solace that I have for not buying is that my money would have been in Mt. Gox and I would have lost it anyway. So, <laughs> I mean, that's what I do to put myself to sleep at night. I think what we learn with tokens is I think one of the great things about America still, and this is why I hate the drumbeat of taking down all institutions and like an un, unabashed freedom, right? We've got unabashed freedom with tokens. You know what we got? A global penny stock market, right? <laughs> and you got what you deserve, pink sheets on rails, you know, 
And there's nothing wrong with the SEC at some level. Yeah, they, they don't know what they're doing and the IRS doesn't know what they're doing. But it gives you it gives you some basis to lean against. And you need some level of centralization. At least I do at my age. You know, you're not going to get me doing this. And so I think companies with cash flow you know, and earnings as crazy as the multiple seem is a lot better than some decentralized place uh, to blow your brains out. Not against crypto and people trading and learning, but I still am a sucker for and a believer in uh, the, the institution of the SEC and some rules and regulations and uh, some level of accountability. Um, I just don't think uh, in, a, in a global open world of, of sharks uh, that the average person has much of a chance. Um, and in a world where there's somebody to lean against and everybody has information, I think the markets become more important than ever, but we'll see. You know, 2017 was a tough year for 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 tokens and crypto. You know, you gave people what they wanted, and it was kind of like a 1999. And uh, I don't see any of the. I, 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 personally, I have some money in a couple funds, and that's how I watch it. But Etoro and Robinhood still seem to be the, the the best place to participate for me in crypto. So outside of those two investments, looking forward, what are you most excited about that you yeah. think, okay, I've got something really interesting here that nobody's seeing. Now, obviously, yeah. with a caveat, you could be dead wrong, but. Yeah. So I continue to do more of the same. I continue, Gary, my partner, who's a whiz at uh, um, uh, Enterprise, Gary um, focuses on enterprise software. He works four years at, uh, at desktop, like basically running desk.com for Salesforce with his partner because they bought a Sisley. So there's a PayPal, uh, sorry, there's a Salesforce mafia, an enterprise mafia. And Tom Tangaz, who's at Redpoint, is a great writer, very simple blog that anybody can follow for free. He talks about enterprise still being, you know, if you get 1% of Salesforce's market, you're a billion dollar, of uh, revenue, you're a billion dollar company. So we're still very early in enterprise, but my partner Gary handles that. In financial services, I think we're extremely early. You know, this this passive market has always not made sense to me. And the 60-40, uh, 70-30 split amongst that advisors are pitching their clients, that 30 and 40 needs to find other other ways to invest. So alt, alts, I'm super bullish on alts, as little as I'm not a private equity person, I'm super, super bullish on alts. Uh, we're investors, a company called Rally Road, which does IPOs for collectibles and fractional ownership of collectibles. I mean, they put up an item that's interesting and it sells out in three minutes. Uh, we invest in a company called Alpaca, uh, alpaca.markets, which is a, um, let's call it a, uh, an API for, for quants and an API for traders. So you can hook up and trade for free algorithm type trading and, and back tests and do everything. It's an incredible company. So they'll power, if I'm right, Alpaca, or if we're right at Social Lever, they'll power thousands of Robin Hoods around the world, right? That want to spin up, but don't want to set up their own broker dealer and don't want to set up all their, and, and build that trust because Alpaca's got the stack uh, that Robin Hood has of building their own clearing firm. So a lot of infrastructure that will support a global, let's call it a global epidemic of equity and alternative investing. So I don't think we've seen anything yet. You know, Brazil has XP, which is like kind of an interactive brokers uh, and bigger than Schwab already. So if Brazil has a company bigger than Schwab, I mean. And in, yeah, India is another place that that's massive. Financializing but so fast. What, what I, what, why India is not 
for me is it's just I don't we don't have a big enough firm. You know, I've got to pick my bets. If you had told me uh, and we're going to announce a big deal here in, in international, if you if you had told me that uh, social leverage, you know, four person shop with no staff, you know, we're under we're just over 100 million under management and, you know, we've done very well. Uh, was going to have to, I used to say this joke, if you have to go do international investing, you're just not working hard enough, right? Like you hear these people talk about uh, emerging markets. You got, dude, you're managing 60 grand. Why are you talking about emerging markets? You can't find an American company that like satisfy your your needs, you lazy fuck. The, uh, you stupid lazy fuck. The, uh, so I was that guy always preaching. If you can't find opportunities for your first billion in the United States, you're, you're kind of looking to get, lose money. Um, well, here I am in 2020, so excited because it's just a layup to see what Americans love and what the Chinese love converging on the rest of the world. And for me, investing is so obvious to see people's face light up. If you're going to lose all your, you know, if you go to Mexico, Right. There's like one stock to buy. There's 130 million people in Mexico. There's like 400,000 brokerage accounts in all of Mexico. So when you give those people the chance to buy $4 worth of Tesla versus $4 worth of CMEX, they're going to buy Tesla. Now, they may be wrong, but I like their upside over 10 years in Tesla over CMEX. And if they're wrong on a basket of uh, American brands, well, we're all in trouble. But at the same time, the odds that they're going to be wrong on a basket of 10 NASDAQ 100 stocks is pretty low compared to their choices at home. So, um, and America's building the tools that will power all this. So uh, America needs to embrace what they're good at again and stop you know, fighting and trying to hold back progress. Um, so, you know, I'm super bullish on the rest of the world, at least as it pertains to, you know, investing. Listen, Howard, that's re- super interesting. I, you know, I think you've been really, really ahead of this. And while most people I see are becoming more and more cynical with everything, you're actually doing the opposite and saying, sure, there's a bunch of old broken stuff, but look through what's actually going on. And there's some huge changes and another enormous wave starting where people want to participate in innovation. It's just participation. It's access. It's and I hate I have to pinch myself sometimes because I don't want to steer people off a cliff. You know, I don't. I think investing is risky, especially in technology, if you don't understand it. But where you can follow smart people like you and me and the people that we follow and really draft behind really smart people. Sorry, but you can really draft behind smart people. It is crazy not to. So Jeff Richard calls it a total reboot, right? And yes, I'm against buying, buying and, and, and Simon Properties and uh, American Islands. Let the private equity people have them. Let the sharks go at them and feast on the carcasses and the financial leverage. Investors should be looking at software and, and the world digital. Okay, If you have a non-digital investing public statement, you're doing it wrong. Uh, you know, you're going to have to pay up, but you're going to have to own, the regular investor is going to own digital companies. There's just been giant reboot. If you owned a restaurant that went out of business, you were most likely booted to an old system, you know, your old Visa connection, you were paying 2% this and 4%, you couldn't accept this card. Okay. Now, if you start a restaurant in New York, you're going to be thinking about it first, Grubhub, uh, uh, Yelp reviews. You're going to be thinking about connecting to Square and a Brex account. You're going to be thinking about how to digitally start that restaurant. 
you know, how to deliver food before you worry about how, how your customers in store feel. So this this reboot of Square, PayPal, powering uh, Mercado Libre in Asia and WeChat and Alibaba in China and India has got their companies and and maybe Europe's the country that's really the furthest, you know, the continent that's furthest behind, but Africa's being lit up crazily with all these things. You have to, there's so much opportunity to reboot the world and that's just happening, whether we complain about it or not. It's not as participant, it's not inclusive of everybody, right? There's a lot of people being left behind. I mean, it's a horror show. But again, the writing was on the wall. Midtown was a, sh a stupid place to go for the last 10 years, right? Unless you were doing a startup and trying to get a really low, low lease somewhere, right? Okay. Because it became too expensive in Soho and, and Flatiron for FinTech. San Francisco for the last five years was a disgusting place. So all COVID did was shine a light on, on the inefficiencies of that city. So, so, so it's not something new that COVID wrecked Midtown and wrecked San Francisco. This stuff had been moving. And so, um, you know, people need to just remember that stuff. This wasn't like, oh, my God, Midtown, what a shame. No, it was, it was, pretty, it was pretty useless for the last 10 years. And um, the rest of New York, you know, lower in New York from uh, 30th Street down is, is back to normal, you know, 70, 80 percent back to normal. Obviously, they don't have tourists. Um, so, so good people are moving everywhere and uh, technology is allowing them to work from everywhere. And we're going to have massive problems, Raul. I mean, that's obvious. There's, there's culture problems. There's motivational problems. There's leadership problems. You know, how do you lead over Zoom versus leading face to face? I mean, let's face it. People are going to be exhausted of COVID by November. Exhausted. So don't think this is like a cakewalk, people. Like this is software can only overcome so many things. Still need humans, and humans need to be optimistic and motivated and, and have human connection and all the things that we haven't had for six or nine months. And then you're going to have the, the the headaches that come from, oh, I survived COVID for nine months. Then I went out for a beer with friends in October, and I got it, you know? And, I, fuck, I was like six months, like doing everything I could. And I'm seeing that happen now with the young kids. And they're just, luckily so far, the, the death rates aren't high, but like the exhaustion of this COVID is going to hit too. So I do think there's a second order effect coming. Uh, and I, I'm, I can't predict what that is, but I don't think it's all roses. No. Well, it's going to be fascinating. Thank you, Had, for uh, giving some of your time and some of your thoughts. It's really, really interesting because your perspective is very different. Because as I said, a lot of the time, it's a lot of, uh, there's a very cynical view out there and I think, yeah, you're a, you know, a, a dyed-in-the-wool cynic like me, but yeah. you're also a massive optimist in terms of change and the investability of it. Really but not all of Europe. I'm bullish on like Germany and Amsterdam and you know certain Dutch, you know the Dutch, but not all of Europe. I'm just I, I, the governments are just horrible there. So anyway, that's a whole nother piece that I'm not as big an expert on. But I appreciate everything you guys are doing at uh, Real Vision. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks, Howard. Really good to have you. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com